Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Chris Stroud. And this is the show where we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guest will be joining us across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Barbara Golder, physician and lawyer, to talk about the malpractice system in the United States from the perspective of both a physician and a patient. Chris, why is this topic important for our listeners? Well, I mean, there's a there's probably a lot of good reasons. When you know, when you say that, the thing that comes to mind is that we are all at one time or another patients. Let's just face it, right? Um, yes. And that means we are all going to intersect with physicians and other healthcare providers of some uh, some flavor. Professional liability or malpractice, and we can talk about what those words mean uh, as we get into this, and all that goes with it, whether that's defensive medicine by its phrase or cost of medicine or anxiety or frustrating rules, all of those things affect every medical specialty across the board. So that means this topic is absolutely unavoidable. If you're a patient, you're going to interact a healthcare provider, and there is no way to be a healthcare provider or a patient and not be touched by this topic. You know, I think when it's all said and done, after talking with our expert guests, um, we're going to come away with a sense that most professional liability cases or so-called malpractice cases really come down to poor communication. And, you know, and maybe, mm. just maybe, that's a big life lesson for us. I mean, think of how many problems are seemingly inherent to the human condition that we could maybe solve or at least make better with more effective communication between people. And we learned so much of that in medical school, didn't we, Chris? <laughs> and we're rewarded for it so handsomely as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, physicians of all varieties, we make mistakes. Healthcare providers make mistakes. We are human. That's that's not really at debate here. But the discussion should leave us, I hope, with a sense that we've got some responsibility as patients to fully understand everything that's being done to us and that's being said to us. If we don't understand it, it's incumbent upon us to make the provider make us understand it. So, Tom, yes. you know, this crazy topic was your idea, I think. So what what in the world made you want to talk about professional well, liability and malpractice on a show? Well, it's just so much fun, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, was, um, I was subpoenaed to be an expert witness in a case early in January thinking, wow, what a big deal. And then I realized you've done this many more times than I have. <laughs> but in, in prepping for this, I had to go through just about a thousand pages of depositions. Uh, I then had to go into court and I was only in there on the stand for like three, three and a half hours. The, my fellow expert who was on the day before was on for seven hours. And it was a really bizarre process in the courtroom where I felt like the plaintiff's attorney was just on a fishing expedition to try to find something, anything uh, that would stick. And and so I tried to make the best of it. I got the jury to laugh once. I got the plaintiff's attorney to laugh once, but I didn't get to use a great analogy. You know, there was someone in the room uh, from a uh, malpractice company, insurance company, and they said, oh, what do you plan to say when they ask about your qualifications? And I said, well, during the pandemic, I read 70 Perry Mason novels about how courtroom <laughs> etiquette works. And she thought that would just be outstanding if I had a chance to say that, but I didn't. So So yeah. I am here. But I, I realized, <laughs> yeah, I know, but I yeah. realized that so many people think it's a black box. We don't understand mm. it. And uh, I've been involved in a number of cases. You've been involved in even more cases. And now to have a lawyer on, we thought maybe we could peel yeah. back the curtain for some of our listeners. Because, you know, one of the strange things, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, about the law is, of, of course, they have words that everybody doesn't use. We do that in medicine, too. Yes, yes. But lawyers are trained to think in a different way than most of us think as we're walking down the street. So that can make communication between us civilians and attorneys sometimes very complicating. Um, and it'll be fun, I think, to talk to our guests about yes. how do you learn that method of communication and, and how do you use it more effectively? 
So what are some of your best memories from malpractice cases that you've been involved with? Well, let me think. I have absolutely none. You know, um, yeah, I can't think of any good memories. Um, That's no, why it's, I said it's, best. It's pretty funny. I was an expert witness once. Uh, I've done that several times, as you mentioned. It's part and parcel of being an obstetrician. Uh, I've actually done it on both sides, you know, for the plaintiff or a patient who might be right. bringing a case, or I've worked for the physician or the defendant who might have had a case, you know, brought against them. Um, and I have to say that it, it's made me better. Uh, it's made me a better physician. It certainly made me uh, a better listener. Uh, and while it's not funny, I have to say one of the things that sticks into my head is the most bizarre is I was an expert in a case and I was going on and on with all of my expert testimony that I thought made me sound really pretty brilliant. Um, <laughs> and I, I glanced over at the jury and every one of them were asleep. And I thought, oh, no. well, maybe my testimony is not quite as titillating as I thought it was. <laughs> oh, no. Well, they're just sitting there in the case of mine. They were sitting there for three and a half days and sometimes till seven or eight at night. Yeah. I, I can't imagine. Right. It's hard. So it, interestingly enough, almost 60% of physicians have been sued at least once and a quarter more than once. And of course, mm. procedural specialties like we have uh, are sued more. Um, number one was not your specialty. I know. I to see that. Yeah, it was only 83%, whereas 85% of general surgeons, 84% of urologists in our own state of Indiana turned out to be number five with 70% of docs sued at least once. Kentucky, number one at 75, and not surprisingly, uh, gambling-rich Nevada at number two at 73%. Wow. wow. So so should we tell our listeners where, where we <laughs> fall with, with regard to this? Well, I'll tell you, in the interest of transparency, I, I've been sued several times as an OBGYN. Uh, and I would say every one of those times, it's exactly what I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, poor communication, usually poor communication on, on my part, where something was confusing. But it comes with the territory, uh, you know, unfortunately. Now, fortunately, all of the cases against me uh, have been dropped. That is, they, they haven't gone on to the real Hollywood trial or a right. settlement. But especially in high-risk specialties like ours where you're doing procedures, I really think it's important for listeners to remember and for us to remind ourselves that the allegation of malpractice doesn't mean malpractice occurred. And that, that sounds defensive, but it is the truth. You know, and, and even for that matter, a finding against a healthcare provider by a jury doesn't necessarily mean the provider actually did something that's wrong. Uh, it's a complex and a complicated system. I think our guests will help us navigate those concepts. But I think as we think about it, it's really important to keep those principles in mind. And I think that's a great way to segue into our interview. But first, we have our medical trivia question of the day. And this was a, a fascinating thing I found. Uh, the category, physician responsibility to patients. The concept that every person who enters into a learned profession undertakes to bring to the exercise, a reasonable degree of care and skill dates back thousands of years. In fact, in the oldest such document, it says exactly this. If the doctor has treated the gentleman with a lancet of bronze and has caused the gentleman to die, or has opened an abscess of the eye for a gentleman with a bronze lancet and has caused the loss of the gentleman's eye, one shall cut off his hands. <laughs> wow. That's, that's tough. So the question was this ancient document written and discovered in which of these five countries? A, England, B, Iran, C, Italy, D, China, or E, Greece? And for bonus points, name the document. But we'll be back with the answer to that at the end of the show. But before that and after the break, Barbara Golder, our expert physician and lawyer here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, where we have our guest today, Dr. Barbara Golder, MD, JD, who's going to talk about the malpractice system with us. Barbara's trained as both a pathologist, a lawyer, and an ethicist. She splits her time between Tennessee and Colorado, although during this uh, interview, she's actually in Florida. She writes Murder Mysteries, the Lady Doc Mystery Series, which I have read all of the current ones out there, and they're wonderful. And she's the editor of the Lineker Quarterly, the official medical journal of the Catholic Medical Association. Barbara, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's always good to be here. I appreciate your asking me on. 
Now, well, Barbara, it may it may sound like a silly question, but explain to listeners this JD business. You know, most of them know MD or DO, and in medicine, we love our alphabet soup after our names. But help help us understand this JD thing. JD means Juris Doctor. It used to be it was LLB, Bachelor of Laws, because it was just done differently. Uh, at some point in time, they decided that was not appropriate, and they changed over to JD. And anybody who had an LLB could. Um, sort of upgrade could change could change it but it just means doctor of laws so it's a, a lawyer degree instead of a medical degree uh excellent excellent and, and what does esquire esq mean after some lawyers names that's another that's just another lawyerly designation esquire is it designates that you're a, a an, an advocate a lawyer okay well let's ad- advocate for the truth tonight with us barbara <laughs> <laughs> so barbara i mean right off the bat the terminology, you know, in medicine, as I said, we love our terms, you know, malpractice, mal means bad, bad practice. We say professional liability. We've got all kinds of words to describe these things, but what do you mean malpractice? And how's that different from, you know, he's a good guy, just made a mistake. Well, it has a fairly specific definition in law. Malpractice means First of all, that you had a duty to the patient. You were in a doctor-patient relationship. You had a responsibility to treat the patient and treat them properly. Second is that you breached the standard of care, um, whatever the standard of care happens to be. In other words, whatever you did was not appropriate by the standard of the community. And we can talk about that more later. Um, And that breach caused injury to the patient. So that Mm. the patient was, in fact, injured by the breach. You know, whatever you did wrong, hurt the patient um, in some particular way. Now of those, you know, of those items, what do you think is the most contentious? You know, what's going to be the hardest to sort of decide of those? Well, it sort of depends on the case. And I I don't mean that as a a wiggle room lawyer answer. I really (laughs) don't. But, but sometimes it's the injury. You know, sometimes patient, you can do something wrong and the patient's injury is, is fairly minor. Um, and so sometimes the contention is how much injury is there? Uh, but often the, the question is, did you breach the standard of care? Is what you did wrong and by whose standard? Hmm. So in the beginning one was the duty. And I've even seen cases where it's questioned whether there was a duty established. What does that mean? That's right. Well, it, usually it revolves down to were you in a relationship with the patient that hmm. made an obligation on you to take care of them in a particular way. Hmm. Uh, sometimes the doctor-patient relationship isn't really there. Uh, most of the time in malpractice cases, that's a given because it's a long-established relationship. It's, you know, a surgeon sure. or an internist or something like that that's taking care of the patient for years. But sometimes the question is, do you really have a duty to that patient? Had you established a relationship? And that, again, is a question of, of very particular points of the law, which is something people don't always understand. What sounds like common sense to the to the world may not be sensible at all in law, and vice versa. Well, my grandfather, an old farmer, used to always say, common sense is anything but. Uh, <laughs> now, you mentioned this term earlier, standard of care. Uh, it gets thrown around a great deal, especially in, in my specialty of obstetrics and gynecology. But Help listeners understand, what is this phrase, standard of care? What is it and, and what is it not? Well, in some ways, it's a phrase of art, which means it's not terribly well-defined. <laughs> and in some ways, it's actually very well-defined in law. And, and most of the time, you kind of live in another world between those two things. The standard of care, simply put, means what the physician is expected to do for the patient in a particular way. Hmm. Um, for example it would probably not be the standard of care to bleed a patient with leeches today. Okay. <laughs> but if we use little sharp metal lancets, that would be okay, right? <laughs> that might be okay. But in, you know, in 1500, that was the common treatment for things. So in some ways, it's what's in common usage. In, in some circumstances, it's what's been established by professional groups like ACOG, the Association of, uh, what is it, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. Um, In some ways, it's established by law. And and so um, it really depends, again, on the facts of the situation. But there are a lot of things that go into saying there's there's a range of things physicians may do to care for patients. 
but it is a range, and there are some things that are outside the range. And the things so that are outside the range. No, I was just going to say, you, you know, you can't go to standardofcare.com and, right. and look up, you know, what's the standard of care for taking a cancer off the end of someone's nose like Tom does. And, and so this is a challenge, isn't it? Because it isn't always, as you, as you mentioned, it isn't always really clear what the standard of care is. Exactly. And the standard of care for Tom, who is in one particular field, might be different than the standard of care for my husband, who treats patients with similar conditions with radiation. So, radiation. so the, the, the standard will vary according to the physician, the patient's condition, the patient's desires, because the patient has a, has a, a role in saying what he wants, um, and the patient and the physician's specialty. But I like the the standardofcare.com. I might go buy that. Uh, <laughs> you can establish website. that. Yeah. yeah, buy that one. I'd, I'd like to say something that ACOG, American Academy of Dermatology, every time I see something that put out in education, it says specifically, this does not establish a standard of care. Have you noticed that in your specialty, Chris? Uh, oh, sure. Everyone is afraid, and, and rightfully so. They, they aren't trying to say this is what you have to do and there's no way to do anything besides this and still be right. So I think they're, they're appropriately fearful that what they're saying is going to be taken as an absolute. So what do you right. think of that, Barbara? What, I think that's wise on their part because exactly what you're saying, Chris, they are afraid that it will be taken as an absolute. And those things are, are rarely absolutes. There are a few, but there are relatively few. And that does not, however, mean that they can't be put in evidence as to what the standard of care really is. Now, when you get right down to it, the standard of care is what the court decides in any particular case is the standard of care, which makes it so tricky because a physician can work very confidently and very competently uh, to take care of a patient according to what's known and, and his practice and what's in the community, all those things. And a court can, in fact, come along and say, that eh, wasn't enough. Mm. Now, that... Physicians worry about that a lot, and it does happen from time to time, but it's it's less common than it used to be, in part because organizations like ACOG and the American Academy of Dermatology and others have begun to sort of foster communication among physicians at all levels to say, what is it that we really should be doing with these people in this situation? So I think that's actually kind of a positive thing that's come out of this. Well, Barbara, in this age of, you know, sort of unlimited data and information, do you find that it's it's better or worse than yesteryear uh, when I was young um, and that patients can go online and look up the answer to really any medical question? Therefore, do you find there can be this sense of, uh, well, everybody knows the standard. I found it on Google and you didn't do that. So you're wrong. I think that's a risk, but I think there's a way to flip that and look at it in a different perspective. Hmm. Um, I, my daughter happens to have had a fairly obscure cause for repeated miscarriage, which she chased down on the internet and finally found a physician <laughs> who was willing to listen to her, and she was right. So, you know, sometimes these things have positive effects. So, yeah, I, I, I think that physicians particularly get get frustrated by the internet docs and, you know, the internet experts because patients are rarely able to manage that information well because they don't have the background to put it in. Now, Lorna grew up around a, a, a dining room table listening to medicine all the time, so she was a little better at it. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I think it's a sword with two edges. Sometimes it helps. Oftentimes it's very frustrating and it, and it causes anxiety and it, sometimes it causes cases that it shouldn't. So, you know, in a, mal in a malpractice or a professional liability case, you know, there's going to be these two parties and one is going to say, you did something wrong, you didn't follow the standard. What's the process look like for figuring that out? How, how is it determined if the standard of care was met or, or not met? Well, I'm going to paint in very broad strokes because the details vary from state to state. Mm. You know, the, the procedural details vary from state to state. But basically, somebody goes to a lawyer and says, I think Dr. Jones messed up my case, and here's why. Hmm. Dr. Jones, or um, the attorney, Attorney Smith, will, if he's, if he's smart at all, will ask for the records and take a look at them and have an expert review them and tell him what's going on. Because just because a patient is injured 
doesn't mean the doctor did something wrong. There are all uh, kinds of reasons that uh, patients can be injured that they have nothing to do with malpractice. Second thing he's going to look at is what are the damages? If a patient can be injured, but not badly enough to warrant taking it to court because mm. it's an expensive sort of thing. Um, so he will look at that. And uh, if the attorney thinks that the case actually has merit, that means that there there is an, a legitimate argument that this physician did something wrong. Then they'll go through whatever procedural hoops the state has in terms of filing filing the case, and then it goes to trial. Hmm. Or if it's not settled beforehand, now but beforehand both sides will examine each other, do depositions, discovery, look at records, look at history, you know, talk about the case, and uh, sometimes they'll decide to come to a settlement. Sometimes that's because there's a legitimate reason to say, yeah, there was something went wrong here, but maybe we really don't want to go to court and put it in front of a jury, which is you know kind of a risky thing. Um, <laughs> but but so some some of those will be settled out. Sometimes they'll be settled because the insurance company, the physician's insurance company, feels that it's cheaper to settle mm. than it is to litigate because litigating these cases can be very very expensive. If if it's going to cost you a hundred thousand dollars to litigate the case and twenty to settle it, you settle it. Sure. So um, and no. that that may that may have nothing to do with. Um, the merits of the case. And, and Barbara, isn't it true that it's only a small percentage of filed cases actually go to trial? It's it certainly it certainly has been the case. I, I'm I, in talking with some lawyers more recently. It it seems like that's shifting a little bit. That insurance companies are becoming a little bit more reluctant to settle. But for them, it's an arithmetic question, and you can't blame them. They're in the business of taking care of their clients and still keeping their heads above water economically. So sometimes um, settling a case is an economic decision, especially if it's a close one. Now, Barbara, you mentioned the word expert. Uh, and so Tom and I would like to think that we're always the expert. Um, <laughs> but uh, and, and lawyer land and lawyer world, that has, a, that has a different meaning. So, you know, what is this expert witness? What's their job? And how does one get to be an expert? Well, an expert witness is basically a witness who has particular expertise in the area of practice that the physician's involved in and can offer um, an educated opinion on whether the standard of care was or wasn't met. So that's why a malpractice case gets called the battle of the expert. The plaintiff, the, the patient has his expert, the, the doctor has his expert, and they go at it. Um, and, and that's that's just a function of our adversarial system of justice is the way it works. Now, would I do it differently? Maybe, but then I'm not in charge of things. So <laughs> this is what we have and this is how it works. And to be an expert, you have to present your credentials to the court. Um, and usually they, you know, things like you have to be trained in the area that you're talking about. You have to have expertise in it. Sure. Um, you, you have to have a good record as a physician, meaning that you're not disciplined for a lot of things. In addition to that, many uh, physician or many uh, attorneys on either side will go after experts who are professionally expert. Uh, in other words, who do nothing but be an expert uh, witness for one side or the other. And so um, that has to do not so much with your qualifications, but your credibility. You know, if you, if you when I started out, it was very interesting. I, I worked as a malpractice defense attorney for, for some time. And before that, when I was in law school, I had been solicited to be an expert by a number of cases. And the guy who ultimately would become my boss when I went into, into malpractice defense said, you got to watch it because you're going to end up skewing your testimony to the guy who pays your bills. <laughs> and so you don't want to get the reputation for only representing right the plaintiff or the defense and that that can be that can be a little bit difficult now mm. are there people who do that yes are they always suspect no some 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 of them are very good and and have very good reputations and we'll give you a straight story but those are the kinds of things that go into evaluating the testimony because you think about it the people on the jury don't know the experts from anybody. And so they have to look at their credentials and their presentation and all sure. of these things and make a decision about how much they're going to believe that person. And yeah. that's, that's the weakness of our system in, in some ways. So Barbara, I think listeners would be shocked to learn that from the time um, some type of event occurs to the time that a case is settled, 
can be years and years and years. Why does it take so long for the two parties to come to some kind of resolution? Well, first, it can be years and years and years, but something like 60% get settled or, or tried within the first two years. Ah. That's not too bad. Um, it's only about, oh, maybe 8 or 10% that go more than four or five years. Mm-hmm. And the answer is usually because it's a complicated case, uh, because there because there's a lot of, of work to develop the case that has to go on, because the dockets, that means the court's calendar, are crowded. Um, it, it, there, there are a lot of logistics that go into it. Now, every physician who's who's in this situation wants it handled right now, but when you've got three or four plaintiffs and five or six experts and thirty witnesses, mm-hmm. um, and a, a judge and two lawyers or three lawyers or four lawyers or five lawyers trying to to jockey their schedules and make things work, it it just necessarily um, manages to be a time-consuming process. Frustrating to the doctor, but there's no real malice in it. It's just the way the system works. Hmm. Now, Barbara, something that I learned after medical school that we have here in Indiana, I think Texas has it and other states have it, and I really think it's wonderful is that when a case is filed against a doctor, it first goes to a panel of your peers in the state, in your specialty, who you don't know. So like when I've been sued, or when Chris, a panel of three dermatologists or OBGYN doctors looks it over and then decides. And whatever they decide, if it's 3021, they have declared that they will be an expert for whichever side they think, you know, was in the right. What do you think about systems that do that before they can go to trial? I think like anything, it has its upsides and its downsides. Medical malpractice is such an incredibly arcane area that having people who are not experts in the area evaluate the merits of the case is very, very tricky. Mm-hmm. To get a guy off the street to understand, you know, for example, the complexities of most surgery is, is right, just but, not but, easy. But Indiana, it's three other dermatologists evaluate. Right. Well, so that is an advantage. Now, the, the disadvantage comes in. How are those physicians chosen? Um, what are those By physicians? each side. Yeah, each what? side chooses one. And then those two doctors those choose, two the choose third. another. Then that probably works pretty well. Um, you know, it, it, it's one of the it it has it has the advantage of sort of sifting out the cases that are going to not do very well. Right. It, it, the cases that are not meritorious, which, by the way, the the average malpractice attorney who's a plaintiff's attorney has to get pretty good at because he makes his living by picking cases that will win. Mm. And so he has to be pretty good about that. But in that regard, it's, it's helpful. It does, however, add another step and another time delay into what's going on. I mean, do you think, uh, based on your experience uh, in both medicine and law, if you had to say at the end of the day, do you, do you think this adversarial system of ours does it serve up the the product of justice uh, to the to the best of that anyone could do? Oh, I don't. I mean, I don't know what the measure for that is actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's what we've got. Yeah. And it's not going to change tremendously. There there are a couple of models out there where they're trying to to tweak the edges, but basically the civil tort system is the civil tort system. It's not going to change very much. Um, to the extent that we can do things like Tom was describing, adding those kinds of panels up front. In in, in my state, I, back in the day when I was doing this, that came at the end sort of as a mandatory ar- arbitration before going to court. So it was like a, it was the same thing, but a, a, a different position, which is why I was a little confused about what you're talking about, because we did it backwards. Um, Got it. You know, the the system is what it is. And the system is, I make a complaint, I make a claim, somebody else has to defend against that claim, and people who are not party to that claim make a, make a decision about who's right on it. That's just the way it is. Now, to the extent that we can filter out the cases that are not meritorious, that we can prevent abuses, and there are abuses, um, it makes the system better. And there, there are a number of different, um, different ways to do that, that that various states have experimented with, like those panels, like mandatory arbitration, those kinds of things. Well, this is a great place to take a break about halfway through our interview here on Dr. Doctor. We'll be back after the break with Dr. Barbara Golder and Malpractice. 
Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our Dr. Lawyer conversation. <laughs> you know, Barbara, continuing with our discussion, uh, based on your experience in the, in the malpractice or professional liability system, have you seen that it, that it changes physician behavior, either for the, maybe for the better or for the worse? I think it does both. I, there's a, a fairly famous case that used to be I used to be taught in in tort class in law school, probably still is, um, that had to do not with doctors as it turns out, but with optometrists and ophthalmo- well ophthalmologists by extension. But I think it was an optometrist in this case, and it had to do with taking pressures on the eye, and uh, someone developed glaucoma had been seen by an optometrist and hadn't had his pressures taken. And the question was, was it the standard of care? Well, in this community, it wasn't. Uh, but the court said, you know, this is not invasive. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's important to do this. This is something you ought to be doing. It's a standard of care. Now, mm. that sort of established by fiat a standard of care. And that happens from time to time in these cases, uh, particularly if they're high profile or, or, or big dollar cases. So I do think that it has a way of driving the standard of care upwards and outwards. In other words, that it, it makes it not so much a geographic thing as it is, okay, we're in the United States of America, everybody's got access to this particular treatment, you ought, you ought mm. to be doing it. So I do think that there are some very positive things about that. Um, I think there are some very negative things as well. I think it's driven up the cost of health care because of concern for being sued. I mean, mm. If you go into the emergency room with a headache, odds are you're going to get an MRI or CAT scan because... <laughs> One of the things they're going to be worried about is, do you have a brain tumor? Do you have a subdural? Or all, which are exceedingly rare for people who come into the yes. emergency room with headaches. But if you miss one, um, right. it becomes a problem. And and you might win the suit, but you're going to spend three, four years involved in the suit. And it's still going to cost time and money. So I think it's had positive and negative effects. And it's very difficult to balance the two. So... Something that all physicians fear is having their name in something called the National Practitioner Data Bank. What is this horrible pit in the lowest level of purgatory or highest level of hell? <laughs> I think it might be in the lowest level of hell, right down there with Satan in the eyes, actually. Uh, well, I'm with the traders, huh? <laughs> you got to understand a little bit about where the National Practitioner Data Bank came from. It came from um, the fact that and, and this is this is kind of one of the problems that we have, and I, I don't know how we solve this one because my, my default position is never to make the federal government more involved in anything, okay? But, <laughs> yes. but, subsidiarity. <laughs> subsidiarity, but, 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 here's the problem. If you have every state licensing physicians individually, then if a physician gets into real trouble in Alabama, he can move to Georgia and Georgia and Alabama may or may not talk and he can go on and just, Mm. you know, sort of hopscotch over the country. Now there were some fairly high profile, very damaging cases that occurred from physicians who did this and people were rightly outraged. Mm. You know, why should this be allowed to happen? Um, And so the national practitioner data bank, emerged as a way of having a national bank of lawsuits and settlements and disciplinary actions and all those sorts of things so that physicians when they applied say for privileges in a new hospital they could check and see if there was something in the old hospital Um, so it's 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 a good idea now i'm not sure that you can demonstrate that except for the very egregious cases that prompted it in the first place that it's made much of a positive difference. Mm. It has certainly made life more difficult both for institutions and for physicians just because of the the checking and the records and updating and all that kind of stuff that goes on. And there have been some circumstances in which reports were made that were, um, if not wrong, at least not appropriate, you know, not, not quite right. And there have been some difficulties with physicians getting those corrected and some damages to their practices or their or their or their um, reputations. So what goes so, into this data bank? What kind of information? Um, malpractice settlements, malpractice verdicts, um, disciplinary actions, those sorts of things. So th- things that and it's a legitimate concern that we have some tr- way of tracking physicians yes. who truly are mm-hmm. bad apples. Um, and I think it over this, uh, this was in 1985 or 86 that this was established. It's old sort of things, 40 years old. Um, I think it's settled out to where it's, it's functioning as well as it 
could be expected to, and it's not causing too much trouble, and it's and, and when it's used properly, it's preventing some problems. So all in all, I think it's, it's worked out pretty well, but um, it's not a panacea. It's really yeah. not. Now, changing gears a little, Barbara, this, this idea of apologizing, I mean, our mothers told us if we do something wrong, apologize. That's a, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> but if Tom and I, Tom or I, have a, an outcome that we don't like with a patient, you know, our heart is to go apologize. I'm sorry this happened. But our lawyers would, would want to kill us for doing that because they would say, no, no, an apology is an admission of guilt. What are the issues around this and what are the so-called apology laws? What does that mean? Well, I, I think you've summarized it pretty well. An admission, an apology is seen, at least in some circumstances, as an admission that I did something wrong. Mm. Uh, in other words, I was negligent. It was not mm. just an accident. Um, it was not just an unfortunate outcome because, you know, life is that way. The apology laws were passed in an effort to sort of remove that fear because the very human response really is um, to reach out to the person in front of you who's hurting and do something about it. And in, in an odd way, maybe not so odd way, telling physicians not to apologize for a bad outcome, which may or may not be a result of the physician's mistake or negligence, uh, has a way of amplifying the injury. When I was uh, teaching physicians about malpractice on a regular basis, I used to tell them, look, patients have to be hurt as well as injured. They have to feel that somehow you not only did not care for them, but that you don't care about them. Um, now, obviously, there's there's a certain segment of the population that, that's out there to make money on, on any event, and we're not talking about them. We're talking about ordinary patients. And often, if you if you listen to patients, they'll say, I just wanted them to say, I'm sorry. I right. just wanted them to recognize that they did something wrong uh, and try to fix it. And and I've, ha I've had experiences with that. I worked with a client um, who had a very, very bad outcome uh, because of a completely indefensible mistake on the part uh, of the hospital. It was just not something that should have happened. And uh, when we went through the process, the hospital just stonewalled the whole way. And it was like, you know, you're just making this worse. If you would just say, you know what, I'm sorry, what can I do to help? It would be better. And I think that's kind of the message for doctors and, and, and uh, particularly hospitals. Doctors are not so much this way, but, but institutions are simply because they've got all this accretion of policy and stuff. You know, if something happens, if there's an adverse situation in the hospital, if there's a traumatic event, there are some things that you know are going to happen. You know that patient's going to have some psychological problems because of this. Mm. You know it. If a patient, you know, has an ad, taking your specialty, you know, you have a, a patient who has um, a bad delivery and decelerations and complications, and you've got to go in and do an emergency C-section, that's a traumatic experience, and that's going to affect that per, that patient's view of hospitals, and it's going to affect their view of getting pregnant again and all those things. Makes sense to say, you know what, this happened. It wasn't really anybody's fault. It just sort of happened. But let's get you plugged in to some counselor or support that can help you through this. It goes a long way towards... Um, if not eliminating a problem, at least reducing the pain of the person involved. And that's important. So I think if we begin to think of it in terms not so much of, you know, this contractual adversarial thing, but in terms, if, if you will, in Catholic terms, of the relationships and the dignity of people, um, we can make a big difference. You know, Barbara, you mentioned Catholic terms, and uh, and we are Catholics, and on every show we try to sort of bring that around. But you know, if you're advising physicians uh, or patients, for that matter, from a Catholic perspective, what what part of Catholic teaching, if you will, advises us here how to how to go about these problems? Well, I think our social justice principles have something to say here. We talked about oh. subsidiary or subsidiarity earlier. You know, you, you resolve the problem at the lowest possible level that can actually address it. So mm. keep that in mind. If there's a way that you can handle it, uh, do it. Um, if you can avoid making things worse, try try doing that. You know, if, if you have just almost killed a patient, probably not a good idea to send the bill to the bill collector. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
probably not a good idea, but it happens. And sometimes that's what pushes things over the edge that, you know, they were, they were upset, but, but stable until they get the bill collector call. And then they're like, are you serious? Um, so relating to people as people is what we do as, as physicians, certainly what we do as Catholics. And I think when you begin to focus on the dignity and the needs of the person in front of you and serving that person, um, you, you you move it in in a different sort of direction. It doesn't mean you don't pay attention to the realities of what the law is. You have to. That's a practicality. You can't live in a in an imaginary world. But you can always do it with the dignity of the person foremost. Barbara, from the patient's perspective, if they feel like they've been wronged, what steps would you recommend they take before they actually pull the plug or pull the trigger to sue a doctor? Yeah, that's that's a tough one because it sort of depends on the circumstances, and, right. and I, I I hate giving general you know recommendations because if I say go talk to the doctor, there are some doctors I wouldn't talk to, you know, <laughs> that's just, they just are. Um, and and We're glad you're talking to us. <laughs> that, can, that can add to the trauma, but I do think that finding a neutral third party to talk it through with is probably a good idea. Um, a pastor, another physician, a friend who can maybe bring a different perspective because there's always another side to the story, no matter whether you're the plaintiff or the defendant, there's always another side to the story. And having someone who can help you understand the other side is very helpful um, because then you, you may see a path to get through this that doesn't require the adversarial system, which, which depends on not seeing the other side. Um, so find someone I think that, that can, that can help you with that. Um, maybe even just making an appointment with a physician that someone recommends and say, I just want you to talk to me about this and, and tell me what you think about this. I'm not going to ask you to be an expert. I just, I'm just trying to find some, some solution or some answers here. Now, whether or not physicians are willing to do that depends a lot on the physician. Many times they don't want to because um, it's often a colleague that they're, that they're talking about. But um, that's one approach. Sometimes institutions will have an ombudsman, you know, a patient, sure. a patient representative who can help fill that role. So that's another alternative. Um, and there are, there are now physicians who sort of do the second opinion thing because that's their whole um, purpose in life to sort of say, let me, let me look at this. There are not many of them, but there are some out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's another way to do it. But to find a way to see the other side before you have to go into court to see the other side, I think is always a good idea. Yeah, because what in Matthew 5, doesn't it say, come to good terms with your accuser quickly while you are with him on the way to court? <laughs> so you don't end up in prison. That, that sounds like that principle right there. <laughs> it does. Well, I mean, it does. And and everything about our legal system tries to make that not happen. Hmm. Um, it, it, our system is punitive, it's adversarial, and it's not meant to do anything except settle things so that they go away. I mean, it, it's, it's supposed to help with making patients whole and all that. And it does to a certain extent, but it's not, it's not meant to meet their emotional needs. And those emotional needs are really important. Hmm. So Barbara, if I'm a medical student or a doctor and I'm not really good at apologizing and I know I need to be better, what are some tips you can give listeners who might be in healthcare professions or, or to me about what are (laughs) good ways to apologize? Oh, I think, Sometimes a good apology just starts by listening to the person who's been hurt. Tell me what you experienced so that I can know where you are, because I want to respond to your needs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and sometimes that's very different than what you think it is. You may think it's, I nicked the bladder, but what it really is, is you didn't listen to me when I told you I was hurting after the surgery and I needed more payments. Uh, sure. So start by listening to the patient. And, and again, our medical systems are driving us away from this. Physicians are, are so pushed to record things and ask standard questions and fill yes. in blanks and do mm-hmm. all that stuff that sit down and, and just listen to the patient is really not at a premium anymore. Mm-hmm. So start there. And if you're going to apologize, you might as well know what you're apologizing for, right? Amen. So, 
That seems like good advice. It seems like the stuff that our mother told us when we were younger, it's usually moms are right. And this sounds like another one of those cases. It, yeah. I, I think that's true. But I, I the caveat there, because there is the lawyer in me, is don't do that unless you've, you've had a discussion with your malpractice company about what their, <laughs> their process is, because, you know, they may have very different opinions on this. And you're sort of obliged to follow their lead on these things. So don't don't go off rogue here have some communication and good malpractice companies are now recognizing that it's in their benefit to do this too. So they may actually have a course for you. You never know. Ask. And if not, tell me you want one. Yeah. It's interesting. A mentor that I really respected in medical school said to me once, you know, if you do the wrong thing, you may be sued. If you do the right thing, you may be sued. So just do the right thing. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, for medical listeners, I, I think there's probably some wisdom there in his advice. Um, and then the other thing that, that strikes me is what you're really describing in the ideal interaction is genuine empathy. And it, it would seem that the healthcare providers who have that trait and that virtue are rarely the ones that find themselves on the other side of professional liability cases. No, that's not always true. Um, but often they don't get into the trouble because of that genuine empathy. That's right. And and in some ways, it's very random, at least it seems to me. I mean, there are states where three out of four doctors have been sued. There are states where one in 10 doctors has been sued. I don't think there's that much difference in how doctors practice medicine in those two states. A lot of it has to do with the culture, the environment, the legal system, and all that sort of stuff. So sure. there's a lot that's out of your control. But what's within your control is the ability to be a physician that a, a, a patient trusts and forgives and will come to you before things have gotten to be so bad that there is no result except a malpractice suit. Barbara, in our last 30 seconds, what final advice and wisdom do you have for our listeners? Just do the right thing. He's right. <laughs> <laughs> Just do the right thing. It's much easier. <laughs> it is. Well, I'll toss you a question you weren't expecting then because you answered that one too quickly. I happen to know that you're a big reader. What is your favorite lawyerly novel? Ooh, lawyerly novel. You know, I haven't read too many lawyer. You know, actually, it's probably Rumpole or the Bailey. I'm not familiar. Yeah, it's a series of, of little mystery, well, sort of mystery legal stories, Rumpole or the Bailey. And um, I can't remember the English actor who did it on BBC, but there was a series. <laughs> it was delightful. Look it up. You'll enjoy it. Excellent. Thank you. Barbara, thanks for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. Um, I'm probably not going too far off basing. We'll probably have you back again. God bless you. <laughs> I look forward to it. Thanks. Well, welcome back to Dr. Doctor and welcome to the answer to this episode's trivia question category, physician responsibility to patients. And Tom, you reached way back in time for this one. Way back in time where if we cause someone to die or to lose an eye as a doctor. We just cut their hand off. We just cut their hands off. <laughs> Was this document written in England, Iran, Italy, China, or Greece? The answer is Iran, the ancient Babylonian empire in 2030 BC or 4,000 years ago. And for those of you keeping score at home, this was on the code of Hammurabi. Wow. Uh, that's an that's an intense penalty for making a mistake, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think I'd want to be a doctor. I mean, they didn't even know about you know infections and oh my goodness, I just just can't imagine taking some little sharp piece of metal, sticking it into somebody. That no, that's dangerous living. So we probably have come a little farther along in today's uh, malpractice system. So, Let's hope so, Chris, you probably have the top three takeaways for this episode. Well, shockingly, yes, I do. And the, the first one, let the record show, as lawyers like to say, I'm taking the attorney's side in my number one top three takeaway. And when I say that, I mean, it's a lot of fun sometimes to bash lawyers. I actually have some really good friends that are lawyers, and some of them have actually sued physicians that probably needed to be sued. But this idea that behind every lawsuit, there's a patient, there is a person who, whether they've been hurt or not, they feel like they've been hurt um, and, and they deserve our respect. So don't take it out on the lawyers. Um, they're not necessarily to blame. Number Very two, good. damage doesn't equal malpractice, right? You know, Barbara pointed out very nicely, you have to be hurt and injured. Uh, and so this idea that just because a complication occurred, 
that doesn't mean that you didn't follow the standard of care or that you damaged someone. Uh, and that's an important principle. And then that really leads, I think, to the last one, and that is communication, communication. It is so important to communicate. As we pointed out early on, so many professional liability cases really boil down to poor communication. And, you know, I would say to listeners that are patients, you know, you have some responsibility to make us, make you understand. And in in that relationship is not a time to be polite and to be reserved. You know, if you go see Dr. McGovern and he tells you he's going to cut the end of your nose off, he's got to make you understand what that means. And if you don't understand, stop him and say, I don't understand and I need you to make me understand. So those are the top three, I think, at this point, as we think about our legal colleagues. And this is where I get to say thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on Episode Archive at the top where you can search over 260 episodes by topic or guest. And if for some strange reason, Tom, listeners don't want to listen and they want to actually see us, uh, they can go to our new YouTube link. It's near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org. And of course, if you have a question or an idea for an episode, click where it says submit a question. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.